Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Don't expect to be a, a, a world changer in the next five years. If you do, you're setting yourself up for the most part for maybe success on stage, but failure off. Yeah. If you really want to pursue something that's a life that's interesting, that's that's purposeful, that's fulfilling, know that it's going to take a while longer and that your pursuit of those things that you're really interested in will come together in due course. Mm-hmm. Just set yourself up. Just don't set your bar so high that it's absolutely uh, unreachable. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. 
Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Dan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, so you know, I was introduced to you by way of our uh, mutual friend Jonathan Fields, who uh, told me that you know you teach a science of <laughs> happiness course at NYU, and I am always intrigued by the work that happiness researchers do uh, because of the fact that it's, it's you know based in science as opposed to a lot of uh, you know made up craziness that often comes from the self help world. Uh, right. But um, I want to start by asking, uh, what did your parents do for a living, and <laughs> how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Oh my, do we, we only have an hour on this show? It's, you know, it's a rich question, man. Um, so my parents are both musicians. Uh-huh. Uh, they're both professional musicians. My father was a flute player in the Pittsburgh Symphony for about 45 years. And my mother was an opera singer. Uh, and so when I was growing up, I would see them in, in, in two different capacities, really. You know, I, I knew that they were performing at a very high level, even from a young age. I'd go to their concerts and there'd be thousands of people there. Um, but I also would see them at home playing music together. So, I mean, one of my earliest memories in life, literally, maybe my very earliest memory in life is of sneaking down the stairs when I must've been three plus, uh, years old and hiding on the landing after bedtime and watching my parents play music. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they'd be in the living room playing my father on the flute, my mother on the piano. Sometimes other friends would come over and join them, uh, to play. And I thought, this is amazing. Like these are people who are really successful at what they do, but they really are happy in their lives and they love what they do for a living. So my, my thinking growing up was, well, clearly, if you're successful at something, you're gonna be happy, right? Mm-hmm. That was sort of the way that, that it, the pattern went for me. Um, and I grew up playing music. I, was, I played the piano, then I played the cello, and I realized during my freshman year that cello was not something I was gonna do for a living. Not because I didn't love it, but really because I had a talk with my dad uh, one day near the end of my freshman year in college. And I said, I, I think I want to do this for a living. Uh, and he said, great. He was thrilled. He said, that's wonderful. We'll do for you what my parents did for me. We'll, we'll support you for, for, you come home from college, we'll support you for a year and you practice every day from nine to five. I take a lunch break. Um, and then at the end of the year, you go audition for conservatories and music schools. And I thought, wow, that sounds 
awful. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm playing ball at school. I have a radio show. I'm writing for the paper. I have amazing friends. It's a great experience. There are girls in college, with their, and there definitely were not those back at home in my room. So I thought, you know, I am not going to do this. I need to figure out something else. Uh-huh. Um, and so I had worked every summer break, every spring break, every break break. Uh, in some capacity in the music business, uh, in fundraising at Santa Fe Opera, in stage managing at the Newport Music Festival, that kind of stuff. And I knew that creativity was an incredibly important part of my life. Uh, but I ended up taking a job right out of college uh, with Columbia Artists Management. I was a talent agent, or I was an assistant, I should say, to a talent agent. And the thing that really caught my eye about that was when I met an agent one summer uh, at a company I was working at, and I thought, wait a second, what you do for a living is you help young, talented creatives, or musicians in that case, uh, really develop their potential. That's amazing. And I, and I think that was the first time I, I sort of caught that glimpse of, this is something else I can do. Because I, had looked, I, I thought back to my parents and thought, wait, these are people who were able to live lives both that were extremely successful and that were extremely happy mm-hmm. um, by, doing, by pursuing something that was really their passion. And I thought, I can help multiple people do this and as for a livelihood that sounds amazing so i went into the music business in talent management for about almost for almost no no for 10 years for 10 years and that's really been not not to jump too far ahead but that's really been the through line Mm -hmm. uh that that, that's my life has been about i I expanded it from musicians to include uh, other artists and athletes and and executives i went back to school after 10 years and thought I need to understand more about this. And I need to understand the psychology of performance, the psychology of, of happiness, of well-being. So I went back, I went back to school for both uh-huh. and expanded my, my uh, focus to include all these other types of folks who were, who were achieving on a high level, but were not necessarily happy. And I thought, how do we do it so that they're successful and they're happy? So to your point of um, being, being interested, as, as I was very, very much so back then, what's the science behind it all? Uh-huh. A lot of people talked to me and said, hey, you should look at the Tony Robbinses of the world and the Wayne Dyers of the world. And I thought, hey, there's a place for them, absolutely. But for some reason, I really need to understand the psychology and I need to study that um, in an in a academic setting. That's what I did. And that's why what I do now is uh, I help a thousand students a year. My colleague and I at NYU help a thousand students a year, we'd like to think, really understand how to realize their potential both on stage, so to speak, and off stage, on the field and off the field at work and in life. Okay. And that was really rooted my parents. Yeah. So we'll get into it to all of that in, in quite a bit more depth. Cause I have a ton of questions about that. You know, it's funny because, um, I didn't grow up with parents who are musicians, but I, you know, much like yourself, uh, was a musician throughout high school, played the tube, but got into the USC school of music. And oh, I very cool. distinctly remember this conversation with my dad when he convinced me not to go to the USC school of music. And <laughs> he made a very compelling case. And the part of the case that was incredibly compelling was very similar to the one that your parents made. He said, look, he said, I know you're not going to just major in music, but if you go to USC and you double major, you'll have to take 18 units a semester. He said, not only that, he said, you will spend the bulk of your time in a practice room with a piece of metal. I'm like, yes. that doesn't sound all that enticing to me no. at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, having been raised by parents who had creative careers, it doesn't seem like you were raised with the sort of narrative of go do something practical that will allow you to be to, to put food on the table. And now you're in a very academic setting where you're helping people realize their potential so that they, they can actually thrive. Um, you know, and, and I'm curious how you resolve that sort of a paradox, right, of, hey, you know, follow your passion, but also you've got to figure out how to put food on the table. 
especially when you know you're talking to people who might not necessarily have been raised with the kinds of parents like yours like what do you tell them that's a great question it's a great question and um i guess i'd put it two ways one is that um my path has been uh has been very has been unorthodox even the role i have right now i'm not a uh, full-time faculty i'm not on tenure track um my path was to go from music a very very successful career in music to leave the company I was in, which was ICM at the time, and start a company with some buddies uh, in the business uh, that that is going very well. But I left that as it was flourishing after about three years. Uh, when I went back to school, there was no sure thing. I had no idea where I was going. I just thought, this is really interesting for me. I need to figure out how to pursue this. And I, I got really fortunate to be able to teach at NYU. So you know, right now, my life is, is a mosaic of teaching, of speaking elsewhere, of writing, as we just completed a book, my colleague and I, of coaching, of pursuing some things that are really of interest to me. So, you know, I guess I'd say I've, I have not followed the, I've not followed the um, safe route. When students come to me and ask that question, and I think it, it is a great, you ask a great question, both because it's, it's important and also because it's probably the question that I get asked most mm-hmm. at school. Uh, it might be framed as, I have four different interests, how do I decide which one to pursue? It might be framed as, I'm pre-med or pre-law and I hate it, my parents really want me to do it. Um, there are different ways to frame it, but I, I think there are also practical ways to pursue a life that's fulfilling. Um, and so what I'll, what I'll tell them is, particularly if they're in their younger years in college, I'll say, look, you know, this is an opportunity for you to explore. Uh, what I'd strongly suggest you do is uh, don't necessarily throw all caution to the wind unless you're feeling that. But if you're interested in something else like music or like psychology or like anything else, take a course in it every semester. Take a course this semester. If you're still interested, take a course next semester. If you're still interested next next year, you might find yourself taking more than one course. But one of the big challenges, I think, with college students and with everybody else in our culture mm-hmm. um, that we face is that we have this pressure to succeed very quickly, very young, and very big. And that flies in the face of exploration. So, you know, it, for, when I was graduating in college in, in the mid-90s, uh, I remember friends saying, man, I, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm... 30. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. That'd be incredible to be a millionaire by the time you're 30. Plus the fact that I'm not in the business that's ever going to get me that number. <laughs> um, I was like, wow, it's, you know, hey, I borrow some money. So, um, you know, and now, you know, then it became 25. And then it became, you got to make a million dollars before you graduate from college or you're a failure. Uh-huh. And, and that's, that's a lot of pressure, especially because it's unrealistic. I, I'll tell the students, I'll tell all the listeners, uh, that for the most part, Mark Zuckerberg and Taylor Swift ruined your life. <laughs> you know, they're both brilliant, brilliant people. But we look at them and everyone thinks, oh man, he made a billion dollars by the time he was 18 and he kind of tripped over it. You look at her and you think, wow, she came out of nowhere and all of a sudden she's a superstar. And, and you know, if you really get it, you, think, you, you take a look at it and go, no, they were working at it for like 10 solid years before they hit it. Uh-huh. You know, Zuckerberg was learning programming. He, his father was teaching him he had mentors. He was taking classes when he was 11. And Taylor Swift had a guitar in her hand when she was eight. So I look at students who have multiple interests, and I say to them, don't expect to be a, a world changer in the next five years. If you do, you're setting yourself up, for the most part, for 
maybe success on stage, but failure off. Yeah. If you really want to pursue something that's a life that's interesting, that's that's purposeful, that's fulfilling, know that it's going to take a while longer and that your pursuit of those things that you're really interested in will come together in due course. Mm-hmm. Just set yourself up. Just don't set your bar so high that it's absolutely uh, unreachable. You know, it's really interesting to me to to hear you talk about this, you know, this idea that so much of, of our cultural narrative about success flies in the face of exploration. You know, I think you and I went to college at very similar times. You know, I remember mm-hmm. being a student at Berkeley and it was like, so what are you going to do? You're going to become an investment banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. And if not, are you going to be- you're going to become a management consultant? Like, I, and, uh, you know, it's particularly prevalent in the culture that I grew up in. I to this day, I'll never forget this conversation, which I probably have mentioned in the air before that my dad was having with one of my uncles about what his son wanted to do. And the son was in high school. He says, my dad says, so what does he want to do? Does he want to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer? And I'm thinking to uh-huh. myself, wait a minute, that those aren't the only potential career options that you have at your disposal. And, you know, I, I think the other thing that's interesting is at that age, you have this perception that you need to have it all figured out. And yet you don't have enough data points to make an accurate decision. That's right. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You know, it's, it's funny, Dan Gilbert says something really interesting, the author of Stumbling on Happiness and the wonderful TED Talker, a Harvard professor. He says that there are a couple of reasons why, that humans, A, humans are really bad at predicting the future. And to your point, they don't have the data points to connect, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're 22 or if you're 32 or if you're 42 and you think 10 years from now, I want to be X, you don't really know what X is, do you? You think you know what a CEO is. You think you know what a superstar athlete or musician is. You think you know what the life of an engineer or a doctor is, but you don't. You know, A, you know, so you better ask some people and get a sense of it. Because when the CEO you talk to goes, oh, my God, I'm so stressed out all the time. And yes, I make really great money, but I but I don't have any time to spend it. Never see my family. Is that still as attractive to you? Now you have some data points. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is 10 years from now, you're not going to be who you were 10 years ago. So um, take that into account. You know, And if you don't check in with yourself on a regular basis, like daily or weekly or at least monthly and say, how am I doing in this whole, you know, my path? Yeah. Then you're going to find yourself turning around going, whoa, what happened for the last 10 years? That's totally not what I meant that to have happened. So I think you're 100% right. We do, they don't have the data points. We don't have the data points, you and I, uh-huh. or anyone who's listening to know what's going to happen in 10 years. So um, exploration, I think, is is so essential. It's just scary. Yeah, yeah. yeah? You know, I, I'm curious, um, what did your parents teach you uh, being, you know, professional musicians about work ethic and mastery of craft that you have applied in your life going forward? Oh my gosh, that's such a good, you yeah, such good questions. It's like you knew my parents. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of did from reading part of the book. That's why I knew I wanted to ask you about them quite a bit. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, just don't ask by the time I live the garage on fire. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute, seriously? So, no, 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 can't talk about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it's, I, I think it's, it's a great question. And I, I got to watch two people who practiced a lot, uh, as any professional does, maybe more obviously in certain crafts like music, because you hear it all the time. Um, I hear my father playing the flute all the time, even though uh, I, you know, and, or I hear stories, I should not even know, I should say, and I heard stories from him of, yeah, I just played scales all day long when I was young, and I'd try to get my fingering clean, and you know, this, <laughs> I was trying to work on different little things. I was like, wow, that's amazing. How long every day? That's incredible. And for my mother, she was always singing. But I knew my mother had always been singing since she was seven. So there was clearly, for both of them, uh, uh, an intrinsic motivation to do what they were doing. It's one of those classic cl- cliches where they do it even if no one paid them kind of thing. Uh-huh. So 
I knew that was the case. Uh, I found that in the music business, where I worked 100 hours a week uh, really happily. I, I didn't miss anything, and I was really looking forward to getting to the office before everyone else, and I was happy to stay later than anybody else, and I thought it was a tremendous privilege to go to the Metropolitan Opera five times a week um, for free just to see clients. And so it never really struck me as something that was work for me. Yeah, I was tired <laughs> often, and yeah, I knew that I was missing other things in life, but it was really, it was really a wonderful time. Uh, I don't think that everyone has the great fortune of being able to find that path. And I, I know that in the past decade, as I've tried to, as I've tried, as I have pursued other areas that didn't come necessarily as naturally to me, mm-hmm. there has been uh, more frustration, uh, more occasional frustration, or more challenge, more, oh my God, I'm never going to get this moment. Um, but I know that's part of the process because I also think back and think back about particularly my mother because she was younger than my dad. She was getting her master's when I was in my, um, when I was in my, uh, my three, four, five years old. So I remember her pushing through challenging moments and knowing that what it allowed her to do, what it allowed both of them to do was to perform a craft and share something with the world that was really important to them. So I think that even though things are, have been challenging in the academic world, because it wasn't necessarily my first path, uh, I, I kept my eyes on that prize of, this is fascinating because everything I learn means I get to help other people. Everything I learn means I, help the, I get to help other people realize the potential and live great lives. And that really um, drove me through. So even those tough times, knowing there was a purpose that involved others was tremendously motivational for me. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I want to start talking about um, your work and the book, but you know the question that really came to my mind. You know, we went to, to like I said, to, to college at very similar times, and I'm curious why you think it's taken so long for a course like yours to become part of higher education, despite you know knowing what we do about the impact that it actually has on people's performance. And then yeah. the other question that that raises is why aren't we taught this so much early in our lives? Yeah, again, great questions, um, and. I think I'd, I think I'd answer it. I think there are a couple of couple of important ask, a couple of important points here. Um, the idea of a scientific study of happiness—that's sort of the, the, the let's put it differently: a scientific study of well-being or flourishing. Right? Happiness is really positive emotions. That's one part of flourishing uh, or well-being. But that study is relatively new. The scientific study that. It's been around for thousands of, I said the study of that has been around for thousands of years, but the scientific study of it really disappeared in the 1940s during the war. Uh, it, it was on from 1880 to 1940, and then around, the, around World War II, a vast majority of funding for research went to, uh, that, went to psychology that dealt with negatively oriented uh, emotions or challenges, right? Because all these soldiers were coming back from the war with PTSD and their families were suffering the same way. And it really wasn't until the late 90s when uh, Martin Seligman, who's basically the father of positive psychology, uh, became the president of the American Psychological Association and in, his, in, in one of his speeches during that year said, psychology is half-baked. We've baked the part about illness, but we haven't baked the part about what it means to have a life worth living, strengths, happiness, so on and so forth. So we really didn't have the rigorous empirical science that the academy would 
um, that, that, that universities, as opposed to like, you know, the Oscar, Oscars mm-hmm. Academy, um, the universities would take seriously. And the program he developed is, I think they're 13 years in now for graduate, for graduate study at, at University of Pennsylvania. So what he did was he brought together these researchers who were looking at happiness and, re- and positive relationships and meaning and purpose and engagement and flow and all these things. And we have really come around in the past, I'd say, five-ish years mm-hmm. to maybe, maybe 10 years, let me be fair, say 10 years, to having a, enough of a, um, enough of a, uh, enough resources to be able to put together an empirically sound course on well-being, including interventions. Like, what are we going to assign to the students if we haven't tested them? You know, this is the difference between between uh, the self-help movement and positive psychology, which is they they will offer interventions that may well work. I, I don't want to put them down. Sure. Put that industry down. But we, but in our industry, we put them under the lens of empirical study. Mm-hmm. So we can tell you they look. They work X percent of the time. They work better for these people versus those people. And if you're not one of those people that this intervention works for, try this intervention. It might be the one that works for you. And we can look at those numbers. So I, I agree. It wasn't there, but nor was the science, uh, nor was enough of the science when you and I were in school. And look, it, it takes on average more than 10 years for a drug that gets approved to the, by the FDA to get into, into circulation. Mm-hmm. So for a whole new school of psychology to come into play and for the for uh, universities to accept it um that takes a while too and i think we finally come around to a point where we're seeing it we're seeing we saw it at harvard uh a decade ago with um tal ben shahar mm-hmm. and we saw it at penn uh 12 years ago when the grad school started now they have an undergrad program now we have it at nyu where we're almost 500 students strong and now we're actually and they're they're opening elsewhere and now we're seeing it in graduate programs like wharton has um, business programs that are positive psych oriented uh, and NYU Stern has it, Stanford has it. So we're starting to um, be integrated into other programs and I think that's really what it is. We now have strong science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, do you think it's, it's something that we're going to start to see um, even earlier <clears throat> than college or do you think that it's beyond the comprehension or you know understanding of kids who are, are that young to make meaning of all of this? I think it's absolutely something that not only will we see, but we're starting to see. Uh, one of the things that, that Seligman looked into a decade ago was how to put, how, how to introduce uh, well-being mm-hmm. into uh, elementary schools and even younger. Um, how do we, you know, he wrote a book called The Optimistic Child. How do we help kids, really young kids, um, learn to nurture a level of optimism or hope or positive emotions, uh, so on and so forth. And, and those, what we teach them, when we're looking at the studies, have had tremendous benefits as they move along. Work by someone like, um, cl- out close to you, uh, Carol Dweck mm-hmm. uh, at Stanford, on mindset, you know, growth mindset versus fixed mindset. How do we take on challenges? A lot of the work she did was work on fifth graders and younger to see which kids would take on bigger challenges and those who wouldn't because they were afraid, because they had a fixed mindset that they couldn't learn, how could we help them change that mindset? So we're seeing, we've seen the studies over the past 15 years plus, and now we're really seeing um, it being put into place in numerous schools. Now I have a nine-year-old boy mm-hmm. and uh, we went on school tours 
not long ago in one of the schools, uh, one of the schools here in New York, uh, the head of school, which is a very prestigious school, talked a lot about positive psychology, character strengths, optimism, hope, and how they like to integrate it into the program. How do you look at a, at a book mm-hmm. and um, take the lessons out that are about growth mindset, that are about um, optimism and, and, and friendship? And just by reading through a book like that, you introduce ideas that they might not have seen otherwise. So I think it's there. It's going to be really interesting to see how, that, um, how they carry that forward. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Okay, so uh, lots of questions come from this. I mean, a lot of parents listen to this, so I'm sure they, they appreciate a lot of, of what you have had to say about this. Um, I'm curious, as somebody who has been you know raised by one parent who wasn't the most optimistic, like how do you unwind the amount of negativity that we often get from the people who brought us up? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, there's so many factors that come into play there, clearly, right? How close are you still to that parent? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, wh- where are you in that? You know, it's, a, it's a huge spectrum. Uh, but there are certainly ways to do it. And this is when we get back to those empirically sound interventions. Uh, for example, we look at how we explain bad events. Just to give you one quick example, uh, we, we look at what, what's called optimistic and pessimistic explanatory style. So if you look at something bad that happens to you, we all have something bad. It could be something as simple as um, I asked somebody out and they turned me down mm-hmm. uh, to I lost a game to fail the test uh, to uh, for those parents out there who are thinking um, I, I lost a deal. I lost a case. Um, God forbid I lost a patient. Um, you know, so any of these things. Uh, the question is, how do you explain that to yourself? And so when we understand that uh, our explaining things differently to ourselves makes a vast difference to our ability to, to move forward in an optimistic way, then we can make the most of that. So, for example, if someone fails a test, they have, they have ways of... Oh, I'm so sorry. Hey. <laughs> no worries. So um, they have ways of explaining it to say it's either a uh, short... Sorry, I'm sorry, hold on one second. So um, they have a way of saying, I'm going to fail every test for the rest of my life, or this was just a tough test, and tomorrow's another day. Uh-huh. Uh, they have a way of saying, I'm going to fail everything, <laughs> not just math. Yeah. Or they can say, look, this is one subject that is a challenge for me. Okay. They can say something like, um, uh, this is all about me, and I can't do anything about it. Or they can say, this was a particularly challenging test and I can study more or the next one can be easy and next one won't be as tough so on and so forth so when we think about how we explain those bad events it makes a massive difference to how we move along in our day how we confront the next time we have a tough case or a tough patient or a tough test or something like that Mm -hmm. so uh, those things are really essential let's think about something as as easy as ABC if we think about A, B, C, A, B, A being the activating event, B being the belief, and C being the consequence, um, you get the activating belief is you get, let me give you a good one. Um, you text somebody and they don't text you back. Mm-hmm. Ever happened to you? Yep, of course. Yeah, it's happened to everyone, right? Yeah. And we can believe one of many things. We can believe um, that person hates us. We can believe that person is purposely avoiding us. We can believe all these really challenging things. And as a consequence, that C is... Well, in that case, clearly, uh, I'm not going to be friends with this person, or I'm, and I'm going to be really upset, really angry, really frustrated, as opposed to the activating event being they didn't text me back, and the belief is their phone's turned off. Mm-hmm. They're in a meeting. They're in class. You know, they're super busy right now. They'll get back to me eventually, and the consequence is, cool, I'll move along with my day. So there are, there are ways to deal with challenging events that, when we do it consistently, become habitual. Mm-hmm. And at first, it might be tough for us. So let's say you know, your question is, what happens if we grow up with a particularly pessimistic parent? If our go-to is, well, they didn't text me back because they hate me, right? Then trying to turn that around and think of three alternatives is going to be tough. All right, hold on one second. Slow down. What are three other things that could have happened? Oh, well, they could have had their phone off. 
They could have had it in their bag, so on and so forth. It's going to be really hard the first day and really hard the second day and really hard the third day. But if you do that consistently throughout the course of the next month, you're basically reprogramming your brain to go to, oh, what's the, what's the belief that actually isn't that bad? And so we're teaching ourselves to think a different way. Right? That's really what's happening. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. Um, I want to get into this whole idea of the psychology of performance, happiness, and uh, well-being. And where I want to start is by talking about you know what you guys define as signature strengths. You know, this quote in particular is something. I mean, I have tons of passages highlighted and underlined. But you said you know the engaged life emerges when we're using our strengths and talents to meet challenges, learning something new, demonstrating bravery in word or deed, working closely with others, appreciating something of great beauty, and simply being kind are just a few pathways. When it, we are engaged with our highest strengths and talents, it even has its own term, flow. Um, I don't want to talk about flow as much as I do how you identify what those signature strengths are. Because to be very candid with you, I feel like I walked away from college with no semblance of what those were. I spent 10 years of my career putzing around, getting fired from all my jobs, still having no idea what those were, and then landed on what I'm doing now almost entirely by accident. So. You know, I know that you focus this book specifically on college students, but there are a lot of people in our audience who are long gone from college. So I'm curious what you'd say to them about this. Sure. Um, look, engagement is a wonderful thing. And hopefully everyone out there, I would imagine everyone out there has felt engaged at some point in their life. You know, just, you know engagement, we're not going to talk about flow clearly, but engagement is really when you feel your challenge, uh, their level of challenge meets your level of skill. That's one way to look at it. Uh -huh. so time slips by quickly. You feel like you're locked in. You might not hear the phone at first rings, so on and so forth. Um, engagement is often when we, when, we, when we feel like we're really working at, at peak level, and that can be a wonderful thing. It can be a challenge, however, to do it, to, to sort of find that place as well. So you know, there are a number of ways to look for, to uncover, to identify, let's say, identify your signature strengths. Uh, the most direct one would argue, I would argue, is to take a take an assessment. Uh, it's called the VIA assessment, V-I-A, uh, Values in Action. And th they offer a free assessment at their website. So simply taking that first gives us a really good idea of what our strengths might be. And also, what our lesser strengths might be. And as, as you, may have, you may have read in the book, it's not about weaknesses and strengths. It's about those things that we feel best when we, when we lead with in our lives. So taking that assessment first, it's a great, what I, great way to start identifying them. Now, after you identify them, you want to start exploring them. And that can happen a number of ways. So let's say you get your assessment back and you look at it and you go, spot on, that's exactly who I am, fantastic. Um, that's a wonderful thing. For many people, many people, they're going to go, you know what? Either I don't really see that as a strength or I can see a couple of them as strengths, but I don't really know if they're all clear for me. In which case, one great way to explore it is to share it with someone who's really close to you. If you show your best friend, your partner, uh, someone close to you, um, what your strengths, what your, what your strengths uh, were identified as, you might be surprised at how often they go, what are you, crazy? Those are totally who you are. <laughs> right? And walks you through them. So, for example, I had a, I had a client who was a CEO, and his top strength was fairness. And he said, all right, Dan, you know, I don't really see how fairness is a strength. I mean, people are fair in life. They're not fair in life. That, that's it. And I said, okay, so let, let's, let's talk about this for a second. You, you were on Wall Street for a number of years. Um, how many folks, how many managers do you have who are fair? He goes, oh, almost none of them. <laughs> you know, and I said, how, do you, how have you hired your people in the past 
couple of years since you started your company? He said, well, you know, I usually give them the opportunity before they, rather than hiring other people out from outside, I give them the opportunity to see if they can earn it. I said, that's fairness, right? You're giving them opportunities before hiring others. He goes, yeah. I said, how's that worked out for you? He said, it's worked out really well. They're, they're really loyal. They totally appreciate the fact that I'm always fair with them and know that I'm going to be fair with them. That's part of the reason they stay and they work hard. I said, okay. That's one of the reasons it's worked for you. So, you know, being able to identify them sometimes with the help of others can be tremendously helpful because mm-hmm. you might be using them and not, not working with them. And then finally to apply them, uh, you know, and I'll give you, if I, if I can share a slightly longer story with yeah, you, absolutely. I'll tell you exactly. Um, it's one of my favorite examples. And I, you know, I, I mentioned a story later in the book, um, but it really, I think it really plays in beautifully here. That's this. I had a client who was a lawyer. Uh, and he, he reached out to me after he had quit a, a very prestigious job as a general counsel. He said, you know, I've been, in, I've been in law for many years, first at a firm, then as general counsel for this company, and I don't know what I want to do next. I, I know that I'm talented at what I do, but I want to do something that I'm really engaged by, that I really look forward to, and I'm not sure how to go about doing that. So he took the assessment, and we established a couple of, and then we created a matrix, and we established a couple of very clear um, measurements. Uh, one was the floor for the salary he'd be, he, that he, want, he could make and still survive and feel comfortable. Uh, another one were the cities that he could live in and, and, and look forward to living in. Um, and then third were his skills. And this, I think this will play into the non-students. Um, what were the skills? What were the things he really felt that he was, where his skills lay? But then we put in his top four strengths, uh, his, his strengths of character. Uh, that he got from the VIA assessment that he took. They were humor, love of learning, uh, wisdom, and teamwork. And he didn't just take those at face value. He thought through them. What does teamwork mean to you? What does love of learning mean to you? And he'd said at our first meeting, you know, I have a friend who started a brewery, and he asked me if I'd come work with him. And he said, one of the things I love about that idea is I get to work with a buddy of mine, but he'd want me to wear like six different hats, marketing, packaging, brewing, all these different things, sales, he said, and the opportunity to learn all these different things was, incre- was incredibly enticing. Another guy, he said he had another guy who just started a company that was making pants. He's like, I know nothing about pants, but I need to learn about pants, how they're made, how they're sold, how they're marketed, the whole thing. That's really intriguing for me. So we had this matrix of things, the, the salary, the location, the skills, and the strengths. And as he went through every interview that he took on, as he went through every cocktail he had, every lunch he had with former colleagues, with people who worked at companies that he was interested in, he would rate them on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, so love of learning, some, one company offered him tremendous amount of responsibility and interesting things, but there was no sense of humor and they didn't really value teamwork. So how is that going to work for him? And so he'd rate that, you know, 2 in humor and a 7 or 8 in love of learning. And he created a moleskin where he would just chart every single conversation. He'd score them all. You know, so one, he got six interviews into a Fortune 100 company to be the general counsel, and he was going to oversee like 400 lawyers. Salary was huge. Location was perfect. Totally took on his skills. But he said there was no sense of humor at all. There was no sense of teamwork. There was no love of learning, the whole thing. And um, he'd be doing one thing. So he thought, I-, I can't take this. It came down to, rather, I can't take this job. It came down to two very, very different um, offers. One was from a very large company, um, quadrupled or quintupled the, the floor salary, put him in a city he loved. Uh, and when he thought about 
the strengths, they were there. Well, rather, the skills, they were there. The strengths of character that lead to engagement, um, they didn't rate that badly, but really not that high. The teamwork was good. There was some learning. There was a little bit of wisdom. They were fun. There was humor. But the other company was a startup. And the startup played at his floor, barely hit his floor of salary. They were in a city that he loved. They totally hit his skills. But they were like 10 out of 10 on all the strengths of character. Um, they were incredibly funny. They're only, he was the fourth corporate level hire, if I recall. He was the 10th overall hire. They were incredibly funny people. There's basically four of them sitting in the van working together. Um, they wanted him to do five or six different things, learn HR, learn sales, learn marketing, learn all these things, and bring his law skills to bear. And wisdom, they asked him his insights on things all the time. So we ended up taking the startup job. And every time we'd meet over the course of the next two, two years or so, which got less and less frequent because he was doing really well, he would say, I got to tell you, I am so happy doing what I do. I, I love waking up in the morning and going to work. I love what I do. I love the people I work with. I'm really, really lucky. Well, about eight or nine months ago, he, he texted me and said, have you seen the business headlines today? I said, I haven't. What's up? He said, take a look. And I looked, and it said, Walmart acquires Jet.com for $3.5 billion. Jet.com was the company that he became general counsel for when they had less than 10 employees. And I had dinner with him. So, you know, clearly, I would imagine, he did very, very, very well on that deal. <laughs> yeah. Right? But he said, let's have, let's have dinner later this week. And we did. On him, of course. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, right? We, we did. We ate very well. Um, and he said, you know, it's interesting. The calls that I've gotten this week from all my former colleagues, lawyers, uh, other folks in business, have basically been the same email, which is congratulations. When are you retiring? And which island are you going to buy? And Andrew said to me, you know what, man? It's interesting because I have no desire to quit. I have no desire to retire. I have no desire to leave. I have no desire to buy an island. You know, what I'm really thrilled about is that now I know I get to keep doing great work in an environment that emphasizes my strengths of character with people I love um, for a long, long time. And that is the best thing of all. He said, when I took this job, I realized I didn't really care about the money. I, I was making enough to survive, but if, I ne we never, if we never made the big sale, if we never got bought out, so what? I'm just happy doing what I do. And I think that is a really helpful way to look at how we use our character strengths. You know, when Gallup organization looks at character strengths, um, those companies that emphasize use of their, of their employees' strengths, uh, the employees have a 73% chance of being engaged consistently at work. When those companies emphasize trying to shore up or use their weaknesses, for, better, use, for lack of a better term, uh, employees have about a 9% chance of being engaged at work. So when you look at your character strengths, everyone out there, when you take that assessment, when you really get comfortable with them by talking to folks about how they've seen them in you, by thinking about how you can use them more consistently, then you can apply them at work, at home. You can share them with your, with your partners, with your kids, um, with your friends, and say, this is what I came out as, and it's something I really look forward to using. Because what you're probably going to find is that you're more engaged, that your levels of positive emotion go up, that your ability to relate to people in a happy um, uh, way will go up, that your levels of meaning might go up, uh, so on and so forth. And that is, is pretty strong stuff. Mm. Wow. 
Uh, well, let's just, I want to talk um, specifically about two other areas that I know you guys focused on in two chapters, and, and that is willpower and decision-making, both incredibly mm -hmm. important things for anybody who wants to be creative and productive. I mean, I, you know, it, it's funny because I recognized many of these things that have just become sort of entrenched habits in my own life, but I'd love for you to kind of expand on them for people in terms of how you strengthen willpower and how you make better decisions. Sure. So... <laughs> So willpower has been studied for decades. Um, some people call, use the term self-control. Uh, one of the classic, one of the well, one, one of the classic studies that really explains how how important willpower is is the marshmallow study by Walter Michel, uh, which many of you may know. The basic idea is you bring a five-year-old into a room, uh, and when they're sitting there, you have a, a research assistant walk in and say, "Here's a marshmallow. Uh, it's for you." But if you can wait until they come back and not eat that marshmallow, I'll give you a second marshmallow. And what they found was initially this was just Walter Michelle being curious, just wanting to know more about kids who could or could not wait for that second marshmallow. But what he found years later, because uh, he asked his, his kids, you know, how, how are your friends doing? And he realized there was a correlation between the kids who had waited for marshmallows and the kids who were doing particularly well. What he found was that those kids who could wait for marshmallows uh, had higher GPAs, they had better relationships, they had lower rates of divorce, um, they had lower rates of felony and misdemeanor, uh, they had lower body mass index, they had all these, all these uh, benefits in their life. They were just doing really, they were doing better than the others. So willpower is tremendously important. Now, that's wonderful if you were a five-year-old marshmallow champion, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, if you could resist, which I, I can tell you right now, I would have eaten that sucker before they left the room. Yeah, right? I think so, I would have been the, the, the grab-the-first-marshmallow kid as well. There you go, right? So you're, the, you're one of the grab-the-first-marshmallow kids, and yet here you are with this spectacularly successful podcast. What, what happened? <laughs> Viewers, you know, <laughs> listeners want to know. So um, what can we do about it? And look, if I, if I recall, it's about 70% of the kids – they didn't wait for the second marshmallow. So if you're sitting out there thinking, I would have been that kid who ate the marshmallow, well, you're in good company. Um, so, so what can we do? What, what, we, what we're finding in studies is that, is that willpower is very much like a muscle uh, in that we have, it, we have a limited amount of it. And when we've used it for the day, then it's really hard to summon more. That said, just like a muscle, we can also build it up. And so we can strengthen that willpower we have. On the first point, I'll just say this. How many bad decisions have you made in the morning? Right? When you think about the really stupid things you've done in your life, they probably come in the afternoon or evening, usually late in the evening. Um, and that's because our willpower gets drained. We tend to make better eating choices in the morning, and we make poorer ones in the afternoon when we're really drained out. Uh, we tend to uh, make better um, – well, for example, we – we learn more in the morning. Our brains work better in the morning, uh, cognitively. Uh, and as the day goes on, it's really challenging to, to maintain that level of focus. So one, being able to reserve your willpower to save it for later is key. And two, being able to strengthen it. So how do you reserve it? Well, we reserve our willpower by um, not having to make as many decisions as, uh, well, let me say minimizing our decision-making. Mm -hmm. So for example, you get up in the morning, and um, you know that you have 10 different options for breakfast, well, boom, your willpower is about to go. 
not to eat that donut. I don't want to do the waffles. I don't want to do the sugared cereal. I don't really want to do the oatmeal, but I'm going to do it anyway. But you just made a decision, <laughs> and your willpower has just been sapped, yeah. right? So that's one. Number two is, what am I possibly going to wear? Hmm, I can't possibly think of I have all these things. I need to look good. Does that match that? Does this match the other? Boom. Even before you've left the door, your willpower is sapped. So if you've ever wondered what the benefits are of only wearing jeans and a black turtleneck, Steve Jobs, or only wearing a hoodie, you yeah. know, um, Mark Zuckerberg, or only wearing a suit, Albert Einstein, part of it is that you have reserved your willpower for things that really matter for later. So set your clothes out the night before or decide that your closet's going to look relatively uniform. You don't have to worry about it. And know that you know, your breakfast in the morning is going to be uh, much simpler to, to, to choose. If you're looking to exercise, for example, set out your stuff the, the night before. So when you wake up, you're not draining your willpower in the morning. You don't have to make that choice. You literally roll out of bed and into your running pants, and off you go. Right? The fewer decisions you have to make, right? so if you set yourself up to have that routine, the less your willpower is drained throughout the day, and you'll have it when you really need it later. Right? Later on the day when you don't want to write that paper, when you don't want to write those emails, when you are facing dinner and you have those choices that are challenging or you're going to stay late at work, you're going to go home to your family, it's easier to have the willpower to make that choice mm-hmm. because you, you reserved it. Now, that said, if you want to strengthen it, there are many ways to do that. Um, and most of them, and I would say the more concentrated ones, are the ones where you are focused on increasing your willpower in one area. You're tracking it. You might even be getting some help or, or working with a friend to do it. Something as simple as um, exercising. If you know that you want to exercise more often, set yourself a certain amount of times each week. And if you can get a friend to do it with you, wonderful, because you're more likely to do it. At the end of that week, you can look back and say, I exercised four times this week. You know, this was really good. And I'm, I'm making some progress. By the end of that month, if you exercise every day, if you are, if you are looking to uh, do your dishes every day, to quit smoking, to balance your finances, um, whatever it might be, to, to, this is a tough one, to get to sleep at the same time every night, like an early night's sleep. Mm-hmm. If you can do it really consistently every day for a month, you've most likely built up your willpower muscle. Don't try to do two at a time because overwhelmingly you'll fail. Mm-hmm. But once you get to the end of every one month of doing something that you haven't been able to do, you'll be, more, you'll be better set up to take on the next challenge. And then you basically build on that willpower muscle. Wow. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we can talk about choices too if you like, but you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so one of the things I'd like to finish uh, by talking about is, you know, you guys dedicated a whole section to managing stress, anxiety, and depression, which I, I think is critically important, especially mm. um, in the world that we live in today where, you know, anybody who's doing anything entrepreneurial is encouraged to portray this constant sort of image of I'm, I'm crushing it and killing it. Right. Uh and, you know, the way I'd like to look at it is through the lens of maybe one of your own experiences of, of, you know, having been in a particularly dark part of your life and how you got out of it and what your own research has showed about getting out of it. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good one. Um, wow. You think I'm <laughs> You know, I, I don't know if I characterize, if I necessarily match up darkness with stress. Mm-hmm. Um, only because I think there's absolutely a place for darkness, and I think that 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 segues into depression. That can segue into depression or link to um, other m- issues with mental illness, even if it's um, well. 
other 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 issues with mental illness, and and that is something that I, that I'm hesitant to get too deeply into in this format. Sure. Right? Um, I will say times when I've been really stressed out. Uh, hey, one was writing this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it is a really really stressful time. Another would be, and maybe this is the better better exa- example that more people can relate to. Uh, one example of really being stressed out was being in graduate school. Uh, you know, you show up. I didn't know if I belonged there. Um, there were times throughout the year I thought, "Am I going to make it? Um, do I? Why am I here?" And you know, part of dealing with stress, a big part of dealing with stress, is reframing that stress. So thinking, I have so much work, and am I am I going to be able to, to to really get through that? If when I question it, what's the answer? Is it no? There's no way you can possibly do it. Or is it, this is a great challenge. This is an awesome challenge to really be able to see um, what I can do. Not if, but what I can do with all this challenge. So uh, with, with all this, all this work, all this seeming overwhelm, to say, if I can, you know, when I can get through this, what is it that I can't do? When I do this, what will I be able to do? Um, and really look towards what the possibilities are on the other side of that stress mountain. Um, know that it offers us a great opportunity for growth um, because it's very seldom that we deal with this kind of stress. And um, actually, wait, let me ask you this. Hmm. Um, can I back up and sort of absolutely start from this again? All right, so you're, we're editing this, right? <laughs> I'll go back and edit this uh, fine. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I really want to be able to give them a good example. Yeah, let me think about this when it comes to stress and and um, dealing with it. Um, all right. So when I started teaching at NYU, uh, it was incredibly stressful for me. Uh, I've been told many times in the past that teaching was clearly something I should be doing. Uh, the joke that people used to, uh, make with me all the time was, all right, Tony Robbins, so when are you going to get out in front of the stadium? Um, and I heard that I was supposed to be doing this, but hearing that you're supposed to be up you're a natural speaking in front of people and getting up in front of what was then 200 students is a whole different ballgame. And so I was extraordinarily stressed out consistently. Um, if it was four days before I was going to teach, I was stressed out about putting the slides together, knowing what I was going to share with them, making sure everything was absolutely word perfect. Uh, if it was half an hour before class, I'd be totally stressed, constantly going over everything, really, really nervous, not being a nice person. It was really, really challenging. And then even after a class, no matter how well it seemed to have gone or the feedback was good, I'd immediately think, what, would I, what, what, what do I need to do next time to make it better? It showed up with my friends. It showed up with my family. Um, and it was really challenging. And what I learned to do, partially through working with my colleague, who's a wonderful, wonderful friend and terrific psychiatrist, um, is really to reframe that stress and to ask myself the question of um, why is why am I stressed? Right? What is this stress about? Well, the stress is about I learned the fact that I have a tremendous opportunity to make a huge difference in someone's life, and what I really want to do is get it right. So. I started looking at the opportunity. What's, what's the opportunity here? Well, it's being able to help all these students with information that I have and for them to be able to live better lives, uh, to live more fulfilling lives. When I started looking at the stress that way, 
it made me look forward to teaching the classes. I was still stressed out, but it made me look forward to teaching the classes. When I started breaking it down, what are the opportunities specifically with stress? It was, I get the opportunity to become better at what I do every single time I get out there. And so I'm stressed, just like, just like I stress a muscle. When you push that muscle to get bigger, to get stronger, not to overdo the muscle analogy today, but when you push that muscle to get bigger and stronger, when you push your run a mile further because you want to get better at that thing, you want to, you want to see accomplishment or be more fit, whatever your reason might be, that's the opportunity to do it, right? So that those classes were my runs. They were my workouts. They were my opportunity to really hone something that I was looking forward to sharing with the world that I was looking forward to really being good at. So when we look at stress, we can look at it as fear or we can look at it as um, excitement. When we look at it as fear, our body reacts very, very differently. As I learned, my heart would beat really, really quickly. I get the, 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 the clammy palms, I'd sweat the whole thing. So when I look at it as fear, it would be something that was debilitating. When I started looking at it as something exciting, then my body reacted very differently. And we, can, we look at studies, actually, I believe it was Harvard University that did a study where um, the researcher would give these people something stressful to do, a test, something like that. Half of them would talk about, would be asked to talk about it like they were nervous or fearful. And the other half would be asked to talk about it, but use the word excited. The people who use the word excited did much better on their tests. They felt better about it and they did much better on their tests because their bodies calmed down. You know, Alan and I, my colleague and I, we use the word nervous sighted. Um, well, you're nervous and you're excited. You're supposed to be both under times of stress because it's an opportunity. And it's also one that you don't know if you're going to get over the hump that first time. But when you think of it as more excited than nervous, then the way that you, uh, the way that you perform and the way that you experience that performance and the way that you look forward to future performances changes dramatically. And sometimes it's just using a little bit of language, cha changing the language to make it, to make it um, uh, an opportunity rather than something to really be terrified of. Mm. Wow. Well, uh, I can see why Jonathan <clears throat> recommended you as a guest. This has been just absolutely mm -hmm. phenomenal. So I have one last question for you, which is yeah. how do you finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, my gosh. How much time do I have? Seriously. <laughs> you can talk for two <laughs> minutes or three minutes if you want. Okay. I am a great believer that each person in this world has a unique voice. And when I say that, I mean, let's look at some people who have been fascinating. Um, and, and have unique voices who are unmistakably creative. Teddy Roosevelt. What was Teddy Roosevelt? You tell me. This is uh, basically you've called out my, my lack of knowledge in American history. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so let's, say, let's say that you're baffled because he did too many things. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt, most people would say, was the U.S. president, which he was. Uh -huh. Many people would say he was one of the greatest U.S. presidents, which I would agree with. But Teddy Roosevelt, and that's great if you have it on a business card. I'm U.S. president. That would be awesome on a business card. <laughs> but Teddy Roosevelt was also the founder of the National Park System. Teddy Roosevelt was also a soldier and a rough rider. Teddy Roosevelt was also an incredibly asthmatic kid who couldn't leave his home in New York, couldn't even keep the windows open because he would have died. So you have this guy who did all these array, these array of things, and we think, Teddy Roosevelt's a president. No, no, no. 
He is Teddy Roosevelt because he's done 16 different things and they've been amazing. Let's look at someone today, Jay-Z. He's an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. He's a rapper. He's a producer. Maybe most importantly, he's Beyonce's husband. Right? <laughs> but, but he does all these things. He's not any one of those things. He is Jay-Z. We can look at someone like Maya Angelou, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, these people who we could say are Supreme Court justices or we could say are, uh, are poets, but that's not all they are. They're tremendous women who have done extraordinary array of things. They're unmistakable in their creativity and in their unique voice. So, you know, I, I think that one of the things that is a challenge for us in our culture is that we need to put something on our business card. We need to show it to our friends and our family and say, this is who I am. And that's what can often keep us from being unmistakable. One of my favorite poems is um, by Walt Whitman. And the line that many people will know is, uh, I sound my barbaric yacht over the roofs of the world. Either they've read uh, Song of Myself or they've seen Dead Poet Society where Ethan Hawke says that line and uh, Robin Williams exhorts him to yawp. Right? Now, when I ask people what that yawp is, no one really knows. What a yawp is is a word that Walt Whitman made up because he couldn't think of another word to describe himself. The line that comes before that, la- that line is, I, too, am untranslatable. And I'm thinking, wait a second, you're Walt Whitman, man. You're like one of the most amazing uh, artists in the history of, of language, right? How can you be untranslatable? So untranslatable that you, ha- you have to use a yacht, make up a word to describe yourself. That's where I think being unmistakable comes in, is being brave enough to say, I can't really tell you what or who I am. I can tell you that I'm interested in all these different things. And you'll see through my actions that I pursue them, right? I I pursue uh, whatever array of things it is. And look, it doesn't have to be professional. It can be, I'm a lawyer, I'm a a cyclist, I'm a tennis player, I'm an avid reader, and I'm a mother, right? To say, this is what I am. But I think when you start to really bring it all in, not push it away, not be ashamed of things, but say, I am described only by my actions, and the words I use will always limit me. Um, we begin on that. We begin that journey of being unmistakable, and that I think is a very hard road. But I think potentially, it's also the most rewarding road that we can choose. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a, a really, really beautiful way to uh, end our conversation. Where can people learn more about you, your work, and your book? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, so you can uh, you can check out Daniel Lerner, D A N I E L L E R N E R dot com. Um, lots of stuff about me there. Uh, if you want to check out the book uh, and and some and also some info about my my wonderful colleague Alan, you can go to you thrive the letter U, thrive T H R I V E dot info. You can find that there. And uh, if you text. Uh, the word you thrive, U-T-H-R-I-V-E to 66866, will send you a couple of uh, chapters from the book for free. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for for joining us. This has been just phenomenal. Uh, Well, I can't thank you enough. Look, it's it's not the subject who makes it phenomenal by themselves. It's the it's the interviewer and and the spirit they bring to it. So I thank you for, for helping to make it so phenomenal. It's really been a pleasure. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? 
Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.